Thanks so much for listening to the Park Hills podcast. If you are interested in more of what Park Hills is doing, go to parkhillschurch.com or the Park Hills Church app. who are listening in real time we we are we do our best to record a a podcast or two a week to stay ahead of the curve if we can but there are some weeks that just things get crazy out of hand right well you know like when you have your hair appointments it pretty much throws (laughs) hair appointments you got to take the cat to the you know to the vet to get the groom yeah yeah i mean i don't have a cat and my hair appointment did not affect this just to be clear (laughs) At least we have hair. Things things do happen along the way. Yeah. So just, you know, some of you come up to me on a Sunday and go, I, where's the podcast? Just be patient. We, we do our best. If you're listening in real time, you know that we're like a week behind. We're going to catch up, you know, right now. Also, at the same time, if you're not listening in real time, if this is like five years from now and you're listening to this because you finally found us and you're listening to all this, hey, welcome. You didn't even know that we missed an episode. So forget everything we just said. Many of you may not realize that these podcasts don't happen without our our wonderful producer. Yeah, and uh, we we know him as Hams. You may call him James, but we're very thankful for James. And yeah. uh, we did, you know, pass up on the temptation to just blame it on James. He's behind on his production or whatever. But really, it's the guys recording it who are behind right now. We did so. just pass up the opportunity. Yeah. However, now we're going to circle back to the opportunity and say this is all James's fault. Well, it, when in doubt, I mean, it really doesn't go out until he's done with it. But anyway, we, we yeah. appreciate him and the people yeah, working behind totally. the scenes to make the ministries happen like they do. Absolutely. And uh, hey, we had some questions come in via email, and I know you love that, Chris. I do. Uh, it, it just do you, like. Do you want to answer those, or do you want me to just take these? I'll ask it. How yeah, about I ask the question? <laughs> uh, a very good question here, and it has a lot of ramifications to it and it has a lot of uh interpretive decisions that have to be made and at the end of it you'll probably be left without certainty because we'd be foolish to try to answer it with certainty uh because of some of these these factors that we'll we'll talk about but uh, the question was what would abraham have called god and again this is kind of referencing back to what we see in you know, Exodus 6, there's an interesting comment there about his name, and uh, I did not make myself known to them, the earlier ones. Yep. Um, and obviously, there's something significant about this um, Yahweh being used here. So the, the question then, okay, when we see Lord and some of these other names, so what would Abraham have called God since he would have been before this Exodus time period. Yeah, thank you for that nice, easy, light question. Oh, it wasn't Ask, my question. Mark, I'm aware. I'm, I'm, don't, yeah. don't shoot the messenger. So to be honest with you, this is a big problem in scholarship. They argue with each other, and there's there's a myriad of papers that are way boring and deal with intricacies of Hebrew and textual criticism and things that people don't necessarily care about. However, the question got asked, so let me throw out my, uh, I don't know, 
drip drop. Do you want to hear my answer first? Yeah, go ahead. I don't know. Yep. Great answer. So I also don't know. Not sure we can know. (laughs) I also don't know, but here's, here's a couple of things that you might want to consider when you ask a good question like this, because it is a good question. What did Abraham call God? The, the problem is, as we just read, Exodus 6 is shortly after God reveals himself to Abraham as I am who I am, or we call it Yahweh, right? right? And in Hebrew, that would be Echia, Asher, Echia. And then later on, it becomes just call me Yahweh, which means just the shortened version of that longer name. And it means I am. So then the question becomes, well, what did Abraham, what did he call God? The first thing, there's no way for us to know for sure. There just isn't. Second thing is when you go back to Genesis, and we just talked about this a few minutes ago, there actually are spots where Abraham calls God the name, yep. and we translate that as Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So whenever you see the word Lord, and all the letters are capitalized, and the O-R-D is really small in uh, you know, the ESV or a number of other translations do it that way, you know that that's the holy name. That's the name Yahweh. So then you say, okay, then why did Abraham call him Yahweh in the text in Genesis if they didn't know him by that name? Great Which question. Is a great question. It's a great question. And so let's back up just a second and say, who likely wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Number Deuteronomy? There are textual critics out there that have a very confusing, convoluted plan. They call it JEDP. I'm not a proponent of it. I'm not a big fan of it. They believe that there were a number of different writers who sort of like input different things here and there. There's a lot of problems with it. So I'm just going to leave that there at and that we, spot. At JEDP, we've got the Jehovah's yep. Elohist and the Deuteronomist and the priests. Sure. And so they would make the case that every time Yahweh is used, the, the German word of Yahweh is Jehovah, because why not? Uh, so... I like hearing. Yeah. Because why not? Why not? So every time Yahweh appears, they think that this one person went through and sort of put all these in. Uh, Elohist, same thing. Every time you see the word Elohim or an L name, like El Shaddai or El uh, El, El Roy, which means, uh, right, God of the seer, God who sees. Which does sound like the name of a great Western star. Fantastic anyway. Western Cowboy. star. Also, Cowboy. Like a, you know, could be a country band that has a Hebrew influence. I don't know. There's all kinds of possibilities. Uh, but <laughs> we, we, we get into these modes sometimes where we just start running. We, I got to stop myself because we could just run down this path for way too long. So, but every time you see Elohim, you've got another writer. Every time that it deals with the law, the Deuteronomist, they would say, was the one that was doing this. And the priest would just be anybody who's trying to put words toward the priesthood. The problem is it's any real inspection into that theory you start to find out they're not as clear, they're not as clean. It, it, there are places where Elohim and Yahweh, Yahweh are used in the same verse, and then you go, what, what's going on here? And it just doesn't jive. And so there are people that are still defending it, and, and they're usually the big, big scholars. You know, Some, some of the most uh, well-accomplished, world-renowned scholars in the world hold to this view in some way. A lot of evangelical scholars don't hold to that view. They believe Moses wrote the majority of these five books with maybe some influence from others. Or, you know, if Moses had a bunch of papyrus that was all stacked together, somebody might have threaded those together later on, led by the Spirit. Could even be Joshua. You know what I'm saying? Most of us are saying we're willing to take the text at face value and say, books of Moses, there's a reason why Moses is influential Mm -hmm. in these. Yep. Okay. So if I'm saying that Moses wrote most of it, then there's no reason why if Moses is writing good chunks of Genesis and telling us the story of the of the fathers, 
that he wouldn't have dropped the name that he was just given in Exodus 3 back in the text and say, we're talking about the same God. Yeah, He has more information now, sure. and so he, he implies that information sure. in that writing. Which doesn't necessarily mean Abraham used that name, but whatever name Abraham used, Moses can drop the name Yahweh to say, this is the God that Abraham's talking about. Now, I understand that there could be problems with that, and some of you might be listening to this going, well, that could poke some holes to it. Folks, relax. Like, the Bible was led by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. God gave it to us. It all fits together really beautifully. It's woven together. It, it's an intricate piece of artwork. It is the most beautiful mosaic I've ever looked at in my life. And in the middle of that, I am more confident in the Bible today than I was when I was a teenager. And I know way more stuff than what I'm sharing on the podcast right now. And I've read a lot more papers that are very critical of the Bible. And all those have done is pushed me more into trusting that the Bible mm -hmm. deserves to be trusted. So I'm going to leave it there and just say, we don't totally know for sure what Abraham called God. He definitely is talking to God in a couple of occasions face to face in a, in a very strange way, whether it's the angel of the Lord, right in uh, Genesis 17 and 18, right? Where the, the three witnesses show up and they go down to Sodom and Gomorrah and do that. Uh, there, there's some interesting things going on there that you're like, okay, that's interesting. What is, you know, he's calling him El or El Shaddai in those moments. Uh, he has a, a relationship with, with Yahweh. He's definitely talking to the God of the universe and it's the same God that Moses is talking about. We just aren't sure what he would have called him in the same way. A lot of times we just use the name God to describe, well, God, Right. But, right. but really what we're talking about there is Yahweh. And we know that Yahweh is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if we pray to the Son of God, Jesus, and we, we are asking the Father for something on behalf of the Son, being intermediated by the Spirit, we're using God for all three of those yeah. individuals. At the same time, that word is really just a, it's a concept. It's, a, it's not even really the title of who he is. So... We just need to be a little bit careful with how far we press into the text and some of these things because the text won't always do what a Western mind would like it to do. Yeah, it doesn't give us the answers we want. Right. Always. Sure. At least in the sense of, of the name of God. And part of that's because God is so complicated and huge and amazing that he's only revealing himself in little pieces to humans because otherwise our brains would explode. So he says to Abraham, you know, I'm going to do these things. And Abraham's talking back to him. What name Abraham would have called him? We don't know. However, you know, Yahweh is not out of the question of, of concepts or if he would have just said, you know, oh, you are, you are the one who is, who is like he could have used any other word and it still would have been talking about the same being this, this sure. God that we're talking about. All right. We have one more question that came from a, a, a listener. Yeah. And some of you who are, you know, kind of keeping time here going, okay, you just, you guys just spent all the time on a question that's not even with the most current thing. So we're still technically not even caught up, but some interesting things happen here, uh, especially when we get into the 10th uh, plague, the, the Passover and the firstborn and the firstborn of livestock. Yeah. And if people are uh, paying close attention, we realize that, okay, the fifth plague, the Egyptian livestock die and we see there in verse 6, and the next day the Lord did this thing, all the livestock of the Egyptians died. So if, they're, if the livestock yep. is all gone, then how does the Passover then strike the first, firstborn of the livestock? Sure. So it creates some questions there, doesn't it? Sure, it does. And then if you look down too, you've got um, 
the hail also killing some livestock, you know, and then the locusts come and destroy all the fields and you're going, wait, 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 wait. Okay. So if all the livestock died in plague five, how are they affected in plague seven and then in plague 10? There's a number of answers here. Again, let's trust the text first and let's not assume that the text has it wrong. Let's back up and let's say, what is, what are some logical explanations for how this could be? So the first thing is, and again, I'm just breaking down some of the scholarly literature here. I'm just going to give you a couple different scenarios to show you there are really good explanations for it. And then we'll just leave it to you to decide which one you want to go with, or if you want to go with none of them, it, it is what it is. So the first thing is there are some Egyptians that start believing Yahweh is true, that he is who he says he is. And we have in the text, even in those couple of plagues where, or strikes where they start putting their animals away because they trust, oh, this bad stuff's happening here. We should probably take care of this. So one could suggest that it's possible that some Egyptians believed that God was who he says he is and that their livestock were spared, in which sense they might have sold their leftover livestock to other people, right, and were good to go. That would be one possible explanation. Another possible explanation in, in the fifth plague there is it says none of the Israelite livestock are harmed. Mm-hmm. So it's very possible that the Israelites take a bunch of their calves and lovingly give them to the Egyptians or the Egyptians purchase them. Or the Egyptians take them. Or the Egyptians take them. <laughs> All the possibilities. So you could say it's possible that because Pharaoh's animals and, and the, the house of Egypt lost everything, that they are either pulling from the Israelites or they could be pulling from other nations. You could, they, they're, they're sitting on a, on a, they are the richest nation in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, if America lost all of its livestock today, you you know full well that we have the capability to go out and buy a bunch of livestock and bring them into the country. Pretty Some quickly. other nations would sure. become quite wealthy quite quicker. <laughs> and they and why wouldn't you do that, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're Nubia and you're you're wanting to trade with Egypt and you have a bunch of livestock and they just lost all theirs because of this thing, you could sell them. So that's another possibility. Uh, I would not have expected you to bring Nubia into our podcast. You're morning, welcome. Thank yes. you. Yeah. Well, one of the emperors, one of the pharaohs long before this was actually from Nubia. There was a huge, anyway, sorry, nerdy. I'll stop. I can just see, when I look at Mark's face sometimes, I can Focus. tell, oh Focus, boy, Chris. he's going to go into Focus. nerd mode here. And then I just tell, all right, fine, I'm done. Focus. So th- that those are some very real possibilities. So either some Egyptians kept their animals aside because they trusted Yahweh to be Yahweh. The Egyptians could have seized animals or purchased animals from either Israel or another nation. Or... Another thing that's just possible, and and I'm not a huge fan of this one, but it's we just don't know for sure so that we could throw this out. We don't know how long between some of these plagues. Mm-hmm. I mean, Moses could be doing this for a couple of years, in which case if a, if a cow is able to reproduce after just a couple of years, you very possibly could have that same thing that I mentioned in the first part here, a seizure of animals or some animals that lived through it because the Egyptians trusted that Yahweh was real. And you could have a multiplication of those animals and those animals could grow up to birth or they have calves and all the calves, you know, were in a shed and survived, but the, the, the big animals all died. Now those calves have grown to age and then they're the ones that are affected in plague seven and in plague 10. So, I'm throwing those all out as possibilities. Again, the the point that I'm trying to bring up here with both of these questions is they're great questions. And I love that you're reading the text slowly and you're actually spending some time going, whoa, 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 what's going on here? Every time you have that happen, just slow down and start asking yourself some questions. How could this be possible? 
instead of just immediately going, the Bible doesn't seem to make sense here. Because that's what some individuals do today, right? Or they, it's contradictory. Yeah. yeah, they jump and they they freak out about it. And it's like, no, no, there's perfectly logical explanations for how these things happened. Uh, so we can just rest in the fact that the word is the word and that we're good. Um, it's also possible the one last one that I didn't bring up is that these are localized strikes. So one thing sure. could be that plague five only affected the people around Pharaoh's household and the rest of Egypt steps up and, and takes care of this. But by plague 10, it's like, you all haven't listened. I told you what to do. And plague 10 is the death of all the firstborn animals, livestock, you know, people, and we're done. And at that point you're like, okay, that makes sense. You could have the whole land affected in plague 10, whereas not all of the land was affected in like five. And if you say, but the text says all the livestock, again, the, the Bible is not always super clear with what all means. It, it could mean there's a spot where it says they wiped the entire land clear of this. Well, they were talking about one city and they wiped the whole land clear of the people in that city. But if you read it just at face value in English, you're going, oh, they wiped the whole world clear of these people. And like, sure. no, that's not at all what it was said, but we like to read into it our meaning. So that helped. Yeah. And I, I think it, it raises a bigger question that, you know, I was just thinking about too, in the, in that we, we love answers and we love the details and, and the sort of thing. And uh, first of all, for the Bible to be exhaustive about these things would mean that the Bible would have to be much, much bigger. And I think that it's important for us to go back and say, faith is so critical and crucial to um, our relationship to God. And at, at some mm -hmm. point we have to have to be able to be at peace with the things that we don't know and to trust the God that we do know and the God, the God that's described here. And, and, uh, it is hard when we run into these things, but I think like you, you mentioned before, the good news is here that, that you're catching these details along the way. Yes. It means you're looking closer into the word and always, always approach God's word with asking the spirit to guide you into truth and to prevent you from going into deception. Absolutely. Because I think that mankind's desire for knowledge and desire, the desire to know everything can be dangerous because there's some, there's a root of pride in that that says, I've got to know everything mm -hmm. and, oh, I've found a problem now. Right. I, I therefore have discredited the Bible because I have caught a glitch here, what we, what we think is a glitch. And I think it's it's a dangerous road to go down and just a need for the spirit in that process. Sure. And I would say understand that the question you're asking is one that's been asked by scholars since it was written. And I say scholars, even if they didn't have a PhD back in the ancient days, they knew the word through and through. Yeah. And the rabbis were answering these questions almost immediately after this was written, you know? So sure. if you think about that, this idea of the rabbinic system or the teachers of the law are saying, no, we see the detail too here. We love the word. Here's an explanation that works. So we can, re we can rest and relax in that a little bit. Mm -hmm. So maybe some people are glad to get past the 10th plague and right. Because there are some things that are uncomfortable, and 
we have to work through even our own personal faith. How, how do we accept that a God does bring such harsh judgment? Mm-hmm. And I, I touched on it a bit in the message, but it's, you know, the, there are those times when we go, Lord, really? Right. Like, uh, you're going to be that harsh? I mean, what about the, and I use the word carefully, innocent Egyptians sure. who are just under the regime of Pharaoh, a little bit like, you know, the people in Russia are under the regime of their leader right now and right. and even not not liking or endorsing what he's doing to Ukraine, you know. Sure. So uh, how, do we, how do we handle some of those things that are just cringeworthy, if you will? Yeah, I, I think... The, comp- the comparison there is good because we, we start to ask the question, why, why would some suffer when the leader is the one at fault? And I think we, we got to just back away from that just a second and say, the Bible is quite clear that all of us are at fault. Yep. All of us deserve yep. judgment to some extent. So it's really, I think the way that I like to look at some of these cringeworthy Bible stories, and I'm saying that somewhat tongue in cheek because they're cringeworthy in the sense that we don't like them. But if you just step back a little bit, you can usually come to a conclusion of, oh, that's not, it's not fun, but it's not as bad as maybe I thought it was, or it makes more sense if you put it in different light. So for example, the fact that you and I are not suffering judgment to an extreme extent, the fact that our lives are not consistently miserable all the time is actually a mercy and a grace of God that we don't deserve. Yeah. So, if you go back to the beginning of the story in Genesis 3, the, the promise that God gave in Genesis 2 was if you eat of this tree, you will surely die that day. The fact that they didn't die that day was a mercy to them. And what, what in my reading of Genesis 3 is that God utilized two animals and took their skins so that Adam and Eve could be covered in an act of grace and an act of mercy. That alone shows already that God is going to give mercy and give grace in ways that we don't deserve. So even the fact that Pharaoh is alive is a mercy. Even the fact that the nation of Egypt is allowed to have slaves and do what they're doing is an act of mercy. So by the time God gets to judgment mode, and he, if you remember in Genesis, he said this to Abraham, You're, are, are, you know, my people are going to be enslaved for almost 400 years because the the sin of the Amorites has not reached its full measure at this point. So when we back away from that and we just go, God is giving mercy for 400 years and allowing people to live, even though they don't deserve to live. Like God had every right to just stop the earth from having humans at all. And the fact that he keeps giving us mercy and and grace, our normal operating procedure should be judgment all the time Mm -hmm. or a curse or should be death. The fact that it isn't, the fact that you're able to listen to this podcast and you're probably doing this on a device that you know you paid too much money for and you're sitting in a house that has electricity and heat and water and you're just thinking, oh, my life is just so grand. And then you think, wow, how could God do this? You're missing the point of you have a mercy that you're not even fully capable of understanding. So when we read the cringeworthy passages, I look at it more as God lets the earth get what's coming to it for a period of time. And then he backs away again and gives grace and mercy in a new way. And in that respect, the greater question should be, why is he merciful at all? And why right. does he do that? And, and, and we should look at it, look at it 
going back to that sin, the sin in the garden from then on, we should be wiped out. There should be, it should be a complete end to it. And so it is a great way to do it. But I think what, where we become uncomfortable is the imbalance, if you will, sure. of, okay, why are they so blessed and, and why are they so cursed, if you will? And, you know, take it back to, you know, why, why was I fortunate enough to be born in this country? Um, during this this time and totally and why is my family not ukrainian and why are we not trying to find some place to run and hide and why am i not going to war you know those kinds of things and those are a lot of tough whys that we have to kind of trust the lord with and and recognize that there are things that just are hard to to process in our minds it kind of goes back to what i was saying before too just of trusting God, a God who knows more than we know. <laughs> and, and it might sound or feel circular for us to say that you have a trouble with the Bible, trust God. And you're like, well, God gave us the Bible and I don't, I don't like this part. What we're saying here loud and clear is these are passages that also have, we've struggled with. We, we struggle, you know, I've had conversations with you about some of these passages that are really tough and you're, You've always been a little further along in the faith, at least as far as years go, just to be clear on the podcast, that you're older than, than I am. Oh, is that true? Yeah, yeah. And you followed, Can you prove that? <laughs> you shush. <laughs> you, you, and you followed Jesus for longer. So I, one of the things I've always learned from you is that when we really wrestle with a tough text, you, just, you have a relationship with the Lord and you trust him. So you're willing to start by just trusting him first and then going, all right, now let's look at the text and let's let it make sense with the idea that I trust God completely, which has spoken to me in huge ways. And it's that's really my approach to the text in general. And I think my favorite scholars, that's their their approach as well, is I have a relationship with God. I know him to be true, to be good, to be faithful, to be pure. All of the things about God are true. This text bothers me. So it probably isn't a problem with the text, it's probably me wrestling with God on some major thing. And we, we can, I like to think of it as I sort of just go to God and I, I sort of grab onto his hand imaginarily, you know, and say, all right, lead me through this. Yeah. Help me just understand it in a different way. That's not to say that it's going to be easy to explain to a college student or to a, you know, a high school student that comes in my office and is freaking out about a tough part of the text. Cause I still got to start that same process with them. Just, I know it's hard to hear, but you have to start by distrusting God. They're like, well, I do. Okay, you do, but you're really angry about this text, and I understand why. And then sometimes I go back to that mercy thing that I just shared a little bit ago, and they go, yeah, I've never thought of it that way. And then you start to back away, and you go, whoa, I don't like that this is happening, but this is more plausible than I thought it should be, the strikes or you know, the the clearing of the land and, and Joshua and Judges. And you start just, there's some, parts that just make you feel icky at first glance and then you back away and you say what's the grand narrative of scripture and you back away one step further and go all right who's the one telling us this story it's yahweh yeah and he says he's merciful and that he's just and that he does the things that he says he's going to do so if we trust that and then move back into the text we start to find places that we're going okay i can live with this a little differently yeah and when when we come to the whole thing of what's what's fair and what's not fair Sometimes I like to go back and kind of reverse engineer that a little bit and say, okay, so right. if, let's use current stuff, if the people of Ukraine, if it's if it's unfair for them to be going through 
what they're going through, and I would say it is, then um, then they should not have to go through it. But then what? Then who should go through it? Well, nobody should have to go through it. Okay, then so no hardship, no struggle, no trial ever. Oh wait a minute, we're talking about a perfect world. Yeah. Okay. So if God shouldn't allow any hardship to happen, then therefore God should should uh, do that for everybody. And then if there's no hardship of war, there's no hardship of poverty, there's no hard, then we're talking about a utopian perfect environment in which kind of like uh, was wrecked by sin back in the garden. <laughs> sure. So And the grand narrative takes us to a place where one day it, we will return to that state. Exactly. And that's what all this is in between. That's what all the scripture is about. It, sure. It's God sorting through and, and, and providing an avenue back to that mm-hmm. and showing his character in that. And it's weird to do that, but I mean, it's like anytime something hard happens, God, if, if God were God, oh, really? You know, let's <laughs> talk that through. Okay. So what you're saying is God should allow no hardship to anyone ever. Well, I just don't want it to happen to me. Well, okay. <laughs> so why shouldn't he? It's the yeah. same thing that, you know, so it's an interesting way of, of, of talking that through, but it also helps us go. That's what's so beautiful about redemption. And, you know, we've been, we just talked about Passover and how, and you know that, that connection in the new Testament mm-hmm. and, and, and Jesus being our, our, the ultimate lamb of God who yep. takes away the sins of the world. Totally. That desire we have for, I don't want to say fairness because that's a whole other issue or justice, <laughs> uh, but that desire we have for something better, for uh, a perfect environment, for people to feel loved and cared for and all that stuff, it's met in Jesus. Yes. And it's like, it's coming. Keep your eyes on him. Totally. And I think one of the things that I always throw into this discussion as well is the two people in scripture who are described as righteous and not deserving of what they get are Job and Jesus. And both of them get a pretty... Yeah bad deal. So you start to think of it that way and you go, if the perfect lamb of God, who is the ultimate Passover lamb, by the way, and who is making correlations to the strikes, these, these 10 plagues, these 10 strikes multiple times in his ministry. And at the same time, you've got Passover itself being a rich tradition that just tells us Jesus is coming. Like we've done Seder dinners before mm-hmm. and you just see Jesus and everything of it. And you go, it's like God set this in motion so that they could see Jesus more clearly when he's here. Yes, that's the answer. So if, if, if Job and Jesus are described as righteous and described as, as having done nothing wrong and Job isn't described as having done nothing wrong, but it says he's a righteous man who gives sacrifices for all the things he does. Jesus is the only one who never has to sacrifice because he didn't do anything wrong. But both of those individuals are the only characters we have in Scripture with really no negative side to them, and yet yeah. they're both the most harshly dealt with in some sense. You and I don't have much to complain about if things don't go our way. Yeah, exactly. At least that's in my, <laughs> my opinion. We at least deserve some of the hardship. Right. Hey, we're running toward the end of our yep. podcast time here, but I will just say, let, can we just talk about hemophobia here for a minute <laughs> in that uh, there's there's just a lot of blood here once the sacrificial system is is enacted here. And this whole thing, you know, even just, you know, what are we going to do with in the firstborn? Even we, as, as we'll get into the consecration of them, okay, that's that's going to take a bloody lamb to keep that donkey in, whatever. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty rough, isn't it? We've got hyssop, you know, sprinkling blood on the doors post, and yeah. we're like, what's going on? Yeah. Really, really quickly, death is promised in Genesis 3. We talked about that just a little bit ago on the podcast. 
death is not given to Adam and Eve, but it is given to some other animals in response yeah. as a sacrifice. That begins this concept that works all the way through scripture of blood being important. And the reason why blood is important is because it keeps you alive. You don't die from a bullet. You die from bleeding. There's, yeah. Whether it's internal bleeding or external bleeding, we don't die because of some instrument being used yeah. on us. You spring a leak. Right. You die because blood <laughs> yeah. runs. So the fact that that happens in Leviticus, it actually says in blood, it gives life. Therefore, blood must be accounted to pay for the death that you deserve, which then moves us to the Passover meal and the, the giving of the lamb. And then it passes us all the way to Jesus who whose blood must be shed so that our sins might be forgiven. And then he rises from the grave and one day, ultimately the life force, the the blood of, of every person who's been against God this whole time in revelation will be shed so that the world can be made pure again, the way it's supposed to be. It's a tough concept to think about and we don't love it in, in modern, you know, American parlance because blood's kind of icky and we don't like talking about it. But if you think about it, blood keeps you alive. So if that's the case, there's a symbol there that we're supposed to be thinking, oh, okay, blood must be shed so that I might have life. Yeah.